Well, King David wrote most of the Psalms that we've been looking at recently. Uh, But unlike the past few Psalms where David has been going through dark trials, here we see him face to face with his own dark soul. You can read the backstory later in 2 Samuel. But long story short, David's army is out in battle and David's in the city. He sees one of his soldiers' wives and takes advantage of her while her husband's away at war. And in the following weeks, he sends him a message. To tell, she sends him a message to tell him she's expecting. So David goes into instant cover his tracks mode. He strategizes how to cover it up. Uh, he gets so desperate that he tells his military leader to have the husband killed, Uriah, in battle. David looks like he might get away with what he's done. But then Nathan comes, rebukes David, and David cries out to the Lord. Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of a God of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good design in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices, in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. I don't know about you, but the first thing that strikes me here is verse four. David says that it is the Lord and the Lord alone against whom he sinned. And I think that's strange in light of the backstory, right? Shouldn't God be the secondary offense taker in this tragic story? Certainly Uriah and Bathsheba are the center stage victims, right? But David says, you, Lord, alone have I sinned against. Friends, our sins, small or great, are not just random bad mistakes or regrettable things. God created us perfectly in his image to reflect his glory. But the first man, Adam, in him we have each turned against God and sought to proclaim our own glory, not his. Every sin stems from that rebellion against God. Sin at its core is treason against the king who made us. Of course, sin affects others. But ultimately, David recognizes rightly that it is God alone who will judge his sin, verse 4. And so it is right that he ultimately pleads with God alone for pardon and mercy. David sees the immense scale of his sin. It's not a small thing he's done. It's something that assaults the very authority of God. The author Paul Tripp puts it this way. Every sin is an assault on God's rightful place. Every sin is a betrayal of him. 
Every sin steals glory from him. Every sin denies his existence and his authority. Every sin replaces him with something else. Every sin quests for his power and his glory. Every sin is after his throne. So David goes right to the core of his sin problem, doesn't he? He goes right to God. To you. When you are confronted with sin, do you run to God pleading his mercy for you, or do you run the other way seeking to escape the judge whose verdicts are always true and just? You know, you can tell a lot about a person by their posture as they talk with you, right? If they sit up and they're alert and they maintain solid eye contact with you, you get the sense that they respect you and they value the conversation. But if they kind of maintain distance and back away, they they show that they're kind of fearful maybe or apprehensive of you. In the same way that our spinal cords can show different visible postures in conversation, our hearts have postures too, don't they? When you're having a hard conversation with your child or your parent or your friend, you can start to tell where their heart is and whether they desire reconciliation or they just want to remain angry. And I think we can learn a lot here in this psalm about how to approach God in our sin when we see David's heart posture. I mean, he had tried to cover up his sin. He tried to keep up a respectable persona. But he had utterly collapsed. He'd been caught red-handed in his sin, so now he turns to God. But he doesn't turn in defensiveness. He doesn't explain away his sin. Instead, he does the exact opposite. He comes clean. Verse 3, For I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. In verse 5, David goes back to his time in utero and says that even then his sin was evil in God's sight. As one author puts it, David admits that his problem is not environmental, but natal. David's very nature is sinful. And so the sin against Bathsheba and Uriah is not out of character for him. Its origins are in his very soul. This is who he is. So he doesn't try to pass off the blame like Adam in the Garden of Eden. He owns it. And there's a big difference between a posture that owns sin and a posture that merely recognizes it and then seeks to minimize it. I mean, teenagers, have you ever done something wrong and then in this ensuing conversation with your parents blurted out, okay, I'm sorry, only to have them respond, sorry isn't good enough, right? What do they mean by that? I mean, they don't mean you shouldn't say I'm sorry or ask for forgiveness. That's exactly what you should do, but they they just want to see that you mean it. They want to see your heart posture. They want to see that you want forgiveness, And that's what David is getting at in verse 17, right? He says, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. David's not saying obedience isn't important. God did demand sacrifices for sin, but he's saying that if he made all the sacrifices in the world without a genuinely repentant heart, well, then all his external efforts would mean nothing to God. David knew the story of his predecessor, King Saul, who constantly tried to do the right thing but whose heart never belonged to God. That seems to be the reason why David pleads with God not to take his Holy Spirit from him. Verse 11, because God had done that with Saul. Saul had never given his heart to the Lord. Friends, God is after the hearts of his people. He's after your heart. He's not after your performance. He, he wants to be your God. And so David, unlike his previous few weeks leading up to this event, this confession comes totally clean before God. His posture is bent down and humbled. He's cast to the ground in utter shame and need for forgiveness. And what does he find? Well, he finds that God has a posture too. 
David's posture is one of need. And God's posture is one of grace. Let's continue on and see the posture of God's heart. So we've seen that David's heart posture is one of humbleness and need. What is God's heart posture? Well, we see it first in verse 1, don't we? David throws himself on God's mercy and steadfast love. He begs God to act in mercy. He cries out, have mercy, blot out, wash me, cleanse me, hide your face from my sin, create a clean heart, cast me not away, restore joy, deliver me. David's only hope as he's confronted with his terrible sin against God is in God. His hope is not running from the judge, but running to the judge. He recognizes the seriousness of his sins, and as he does so, recognizes that only the love of God can rescue him from it. Friends, we cannot know the mercy of God until we know the extent of our sin. We don't do prayers of confession just to be liturgical or morbid. We want to know the good news. As one guy said a long time ago, Christianity does not end with a broken heart, but it does begin with the broken heart. It begins with the consciousness of sin. Without the consciousness of sin, the whole of the gospel will seem an idle tale. And so David throws himself on the mercy of God. Create in me a clean heart. Friends, the gospel is the news that we are sinners in under God's judgment. We rightly deserve his judgment because we've committed treason against him. That might seem extreme to you, but that's the God of the Bible. All over this book, Old Testament and New, we see a story. A story of how a perfect God maintains perfect justice while seeking to love imperfect people. And the answer is only by God's grace. The grand plan of God's mercy is to save his people and to recreate us, to make us born again. But how does he do that without compromising his justice? Tim Keller talks about forgiveness as always being costly. For example, if you go to a friend's house and in the course of the evening you bump his lamp and it shatters on the ground, Forgiveness will look like your friend saying, that's okay, don't worry about it. But it's more than that, right? Honestly, what your friend has done is saying that he will absorb the cost of replacing a broken household item. He's forgiven you, yes, but he's borne the cost of your mistake. And so Keller writes, it must be recognized that forgiveness is a form of voluntary suffering. Someone always pays every debt. In all cases, when wrong is done, there is a debt and there is no way to deal with it without suffering. Either you make the perpetrator suffer for it or you forgive and suffer for it yourself. Forgiveness is always extremely costly. It is emotionally very expensive. When you forgive, you pay the debt yourself. As you keep reading the story of David after his sin, part of God's judgment on him is the death of his son that Bathsheba bore him. But what that points us to is that David could beg God's forgiveness because God later would send his son to die for David. God's forgiveness of David's sin and of your sin and of my sin cost him the death of his son. Church, let the steadfast love of the Lord and his mercy wash afresh over you this morning. We can say, have mercy on me and God will listen because of Christ. If you're here and you're not a Christian, what are you going to do with your sin? You can explain it away as no big deal. You can ignore it and try to forget the pain that has caused yourself and others. You can choose to believe that there is no God and so sin just won't have the consequences we say, the Bible says it will. But ultimately, friend, you need to do something with your sin. Jesus came to save you from the punishment your sin deserves. He came to bear the death you deserve for your treason against him. Will trust in him. All your sin will be placed on his shoulders and he will suffer your judgment for you. Turn to him. Turn to this loving God who gave his son for you. 
David here has a heart posture of utter humility and trusts himself fully to God who has a heart posture of utter mercy. So, church, I think we need to take this psalm joyfully, but seriously. Praise God, each of you who have turned to Christ have answered the question, what am I going to do with my sin? With resounding, I will trust in Christ to bear it for me. But, Christian, your life continues. Your struggle with sin remains, doesn't it? So the question must continue to cross our minds every day. How will I approach God today and confess my sin to him, relying on Christ for forgiveness? Will I play attorney? Will I be defensive? Will I be reluctant or lazy? Or like David, will I call my sin what it is and say it's ever before me? and then throw myself wholly on God as my only hope. Brothers and sisters, my hope from this psalm this morning is that we feel broken again about our sin. And as we feel the brokenness of that in our hearts, that that brokenness would drive us again to the cross, would drive us to the God of our salvation as it did for David. Hope we can pray that the cross would just melt our hearts again this morning. But practically, as we finish up, and I had this originally in two different mini sermons, but this is the whole sermon. Well, then we'll end with a prayer of confession and praise and some singing. But let's just do four things as we wrap up. And I think this is, should be especially helpful for those of us who feel stuck in sin this morning or worried that we might not be taking it as seriously as we should. But really for all of us, number one, first, let's see the sin of our hearts, not merely of our hands. Let's see the sin of our hearts, not merely of our hands. And what I mean by that is that David knew his sin was not just a one-off occurrence. It wasn't kind of a, uh, just a weird point on the chart that didn't match up with anything else. It was something that had percolated in his heart long before he committed it with his hands. Lust does that. Pride does that. Anger does that. So friends, don't just see your sin as an event where you lash out or an event where you click that on the computer or an event where you choose to gossip about a friend. Recognize sin beforehand as it brews in your soul. Fight bitterness and discontentment and the more respectable, easy-to-hide sins in your heart. Learn that lesson from David. Second, run to God in specific prayer when you sin. Run to God in specific prayer when you sin. Don't wait to try to cover yourself up. Don't take a spiritual shower and then decide to present yourself before the Lord in confession. Run to God immediately and be specific with him. David owned up to his sin and saw it for what it was. Spurgeon says it this way, learn in confession to be honest with God. Do not give fair names to foul sins. What God sees them to be, that you should work to feel them to be. And with an honest, open heart, acknowledge their real character. And finally, 
After you confess your sin, rejoice in your salvation. After you confess your sin, rejoice in your salvation. David wants forgiveness, not so that he can just kind of like feel good that day and then keep sinning the next day. I think that's often the way we we repent of sin, isn't it? We want to turn from it and then we kind of want to turn back again. David asks for forgiveness so he can rejoice and be restored and know God's salvation and then help others, verse 13, to be restored to the Lord. Church, when you have come to God and have owned your sin, see his mercy in Christ and fill your minds with the joy of the gospel. Don't turn again to the sin that only brings misery. Turn to the king who has given his life for you and is coming back for you. And then go tell your friends and your brothers and sisters in Christ about what has happened and seek to help them be restored to the Lord. Fourthly, I want to have us close with a brief few moments of silent confession. Um, My prayer, as I thought about this text this week, is that we would have heart postures like David and that we would understand God's heart posture of mercy. And then uh, the music team will come, we'll sing one song. Peter will lead us in reading the story of the prodigal son, which fleshes this out for us in a New Testament passage, a heart that comes to the father full of need and a father who responds full of mercy. And then we'll close with two more songs to rejoice in the gospel. But first, let's spend a few moments and pray that the Lord would give us and give our church David's heart posture. Lord, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you for the, the family of brothers and sisters in Christ that you have created at Loudon Valley Baptist Church. And Lord, I unite my heart with uh, my church family here, and, and we ask you that you would work in us a heart posture of utter humility and brokenness in our sin. Lord, we want to rejoice in the gospel. We want to see the beauty of Christ But in order to do that, we must see the darkness from which you have saved us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would help us to be real with our sin so that we can really know your mercy. Lord, I pray that as we do confess and pour out our hearts to you, like David, that we would find in you a God who restores in Christ, a God who has utter mercy in Christ, a God who is full of grace in Christ. Thank you, Lord, that there will be a day when our struggle with sin will be over. 
will be perfectly at peace in your presence with no temptation, no struggle, no weakness. But until then, keep us in your love and have mercy on us as we seek your face. And Lord, as we do something a little different this morning and we spend more time reacting and responding to this message, we pray that you'd be with us as we spend time in singing and in prayer. And Lord, uh, massage our souls and give us softness of heart so that we love the Lord Jesus Christ all the more. In Jesus' name.